Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Good Grief. My name is Dr. Christine Malone, and in this podcast, we talk about trauma, tragedy, and survival. In each episode, I will interview someone that has gone through grief in some way, and we will discuss the impact it has had on their life. By sharing these stories, we hope that others won't feel alone should they be going through similar situations. Enjoy. Okay, listeners, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. My guest today is going to tell us a story about her son and his short life. So guest, if you would introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your son. Thanks, Christine. My name is Amy, and I'm here to share a story about my son, Alex, who was born back in 2000, and uh, he was horribly brain injured during a delivery gone wrong and uh, lived 15 months um, with severe neurological and medical issues until he died. And um, I was 26 when he was born and uh, a little over 27 when he died. And um, it was, it was, you know, a shocking, you know, horrifying. Was Alex, was he your first? Go ahead. Alex was your first He was, was. So um, I had a miscarriage before uh, he was born, Um, just an early miscarriage, you know, that I didn't know happened to so many people. (laughs) Um, And uh, when the miscarriage happened, I was driven to, you know, get pregnant again and get back on track and sort of move pass right over the loss of that and not process it and get pregnant again. And I did with Alex. And um, my pregnancy was a little complicated. I was diagnosed with a bleeding disorder uh, midway through my pregnancy. Um, And so, um, but, you know, at no time were, was there any concern about, you know, serious repercussions. And uh, when he went, when he was being delivered, I couldn't have any kind of pain relief because of the risk of bleeding. And so I was not super with it during a very long labor. And um, apparently, you know, unbeknownst to me as a first time laboring mom, um, there was evidence that he was struggling uh, throughout the labor um, and that he was, um, you know, having decelerations and, uh, the hematologist that was monitoring my, my blood work was, I come to find out, fighting with the with the obstetrician saying, you need to deliver this baby. I can get her through the surgery. She won't bleed to death. And the obstetrician refused and um, insisted that I deliver the baby. And, um, and so uh, the cord had been around his neck very, very tight. And by the time he was ultimately delivered, he um, had gone without oxygen for an extended period of time. And uh, he was born with with no heartbeat and not breathing. They spent an additional 30 minutes resuscitating him and, um, and got him on a ventilator. Um, but by then he was just so horribly brain injured yeah. that the prognosis was really bad. Did they know the prognosis, um, like 
right away? I'm just, I'm, I'm asking that because- You know, it's really interesting. Um, you know, I, once the baby was delivered, they put me on all sorts of, of pain medication and I was relatively out of it, but they did, bef- I was at a, at a uh, local like community hospital outside of Philadelphia and they were flying the baby to a big teaching hospital in the city and before they flew him they brought the baby in and they brought a priest in to give the baby last rites in front of me um and I vaguely remember that um and then they took the baby to the other hospital and I stayed in the ICU at the community hospital um and so I was actually in that hospital for about two weeks and didn't see him at all for the first two weeks wow. of his life. That's, that's, um, that's hard. Was your husband able to go stay with him too? Though? He went back and forth, you know, so he would go to the NICU and then he would come back to the ICU and people felt so bad for us. They would let him sleep, oh, you yeah. know, in my room in the ICU and, um, but no one was no one at the community hospital where this had gone so wrong was talking to us. The doctor that delivered him never saw me again. She oh. went on vacation immediately after he was born, according to her colleagues. Um, and her colleagues came in and said to me, well, you're lucky that she didn't do a C-section because you would have died. Oh. And that was it. Yeah. Um And so, you know, by the time I was released and got to the NICU where he was in the city, um, he was on a ventilator and he had a cooling cap on. They were trying to reduce the temperature in his brain to reduce secondary brain injury. Um, And um, I work in healthcare. I'm a physical therapist. Um, And so, you know, when the NICU physician was giving me sort of the rundown of what was going on and what they were doing. I said to the doctor, I said, should we stop? Should we let him go, you know, uh, before this goes too far? Um, And they, you know, they were like, absolutely not. There's still, you know, babies are resilient and we don't know what's going to happen and we need to give it some more time. And I remember feeling like a horrible person for suggesting that they stop, you know? Um, yeah. But I feel kind of in my heart that I was kind of right because what happened was what I was afraid of. He was sort of medically stabilized. He was able to come off the ventilator. He never, Uh, was able to suck or swallow so he needed a feeding tube and he had seizures all sorts of different types of seizures and um, he was cortically blind and um, you know spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy Um, and and so you know I remember when my husband had been going back and forth when I was still in the hospital and he was we had a friend who had a daughter who had CP they were older than us and she was like seven or eight. And so Steve was saying, you know, we'll we'll have a child with cerebral palsy, you know, we'll figure it out, you know, but this was significantly different than that, you know? 
I know in, in my case with my son, Ian, of course, the provider's mm -hmm. significance falsified his record. So it wasn't as right. obvious um, until we had, we had a birth video. Mm -hmm. The birth video was viewed that he'd gone 20 minutes without a heartbeat um, prior to birth. Yeah. And of course, 20 minutes without oxygen is is not okay for your brain. So um, in our case, when when Ian was in the NICU, I the docs told us much the same thing. I remember one of them telling mm -hmm. us, well, he probably won't be an Olympic champion, but he might be a chess champion. You know, he might have some motor delays. And my husband and I talked about how he might remodel our house or maybe even yeah. move to accommodate a child who had some some motor delays. And and so those early days, and I remember thinking that was just the whole horrible thing ever. I had no idea how right. horrible, horrible it could be. Um, and I remember other, yeah, other people tell me, you know, well, my daughter has this or my son has that or whatever. And, and I'm thinking, well, that, that's great. But, you know, can they, you know, swallow and, and protect their own airway? Are they able to you know, I, all those different things, you know, like Ian, you know, he couldn't hold his head up. So if he didn't have his head right. close to his own airway. So it's like, you know, there's no self uh, preservation skills there. No, um, right. damage is just so, so bad. And in our case, um, we had the same conversations with docs though, about the whole, well, he could do yeah. this. Yeah. Um, and I remember the first doctor that ever came to us um, and told us what he really thought, you know, and we called him Dr. Gavorkian because we thought his, his message yeah. was so awful. Um, but he's the first one that gave us permission to let Ian go. It was the first. And I remember thinking back on that and going, wow, no one, maybe they just didn't feel comfortable or having this conversation with, you know, parents of a newborn. New parents, yeah. Or, oh, yeah, it's okay to let him go. They don't, they, they don't, you know, I, and I know, you know, also they do, you know, hope for the best, whatever, I get it. But when something's that bad, it's, it's not going to be, um, you can't. Yeah, do I mean, I felt so out of place in the NICU. Uh, you know, here he was, this full-term baby. He looked enormous compared to all the other babies in the NICU, the majority of which were preemies, you know. Um, and, you know, I just felt like it was a place, you know, where miracles happen, right? And, I, you know, I feel like maybe they honestly believed that there was going to be a miracle, but it, once it became evident that there wasn't, it was a really hard place to be. No one knew what to do. No one knew what to say to us, you know? Yeah, um, no, I hear that. It was really hard. Even, you know, once we knew we did, I remember um, the doctor that finally did tell us, you know, the diagnosis, he's got severe hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, children like this, usually don't make it to their second birthday, you know, this, this is kind of what you can expect here. Um, and just feeling like there was no pediatric sort of healthcare support that could abs absorb us or, you know, uh, at the time, I don't know if that's changed subsequently. I hope to dear God that it's changed subsequently, but there wasn't really like a pediatric hospice that scooped us up. We were just sort of figure it out you're going to take him home. What does your insurance cover? What is it not? How are you going to have basically a child hooked up to, you know, a feeding tube and suctioning machines with a nurse in your house all the time? Um, what does it look like to have a baby with a DNR and a DN do not intubate? Yeah. Yeah. You put them on antibiotics when they get sick. I mean, there were so many things that, which is why, you know, you know, finding the support group online at the time and I mean it feels like a thousand years ago it was practically AOL online like we were <laughs> logging in on like this dial-up modem but finding that Yahoo group I remember those days it was like um, not being not being um and for listeners Amy and I met that way in a group of, of 
families with children um, with injuries such as ours. Um, it was, and I've, I've been a huge supporter of support groups all my life, but that really made it seem like there are other people and this is not, I'm not alone on this desert. There's other people. Thankfully, not that many other people. This isn't a super common thing, right. but it does happen. And um, to be able to share that with people, you know, especially the the, the DNR part, that was uh, part of, of our situation as well. Um, and really having that, thankfully, we did have a hospice in our area mm -hmm. that um, I had my two older children that they did events with them and they really helped us a lot with mm -hmm. uh, planning and so on um, for Ian during his life. And I, I am forever thankful for, for the, the things that they did that made our lives at least somewhat easier. So how old was Alex when you were able to bring him home? Uh, he's about three months old when they brought him home. Um, and, you know, I will say, like you said, you were mentioning that the birth video was kind of what clued you in that things had gone, you know, so far awry. We were um, really good friends with um, the man who's going to be our pediatrician even before Alex was born. And so when things went so wrong, Steve called him and he didn't have um, privileges at the hospitals that Alex was in, but he did go to see him and did the as like a professional courtesy, the doctor showed them the records that they were sent um, from the hospital that he was delivered in. And um, he went home and uh, went into his office and flipped over his desk. He was so upset and furious at what he was reading. And, and I never expected it, but he called me and he was like, you need to get a lawyer. Um, and we weren't even thinking anything. And we were like, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I worked in healthcare. I never expected to be a part of, of a medical malpractice um, lawsuit, um, but it happened in real time. Like we were meeting with a lawyer before Alex was even out of the NICU. Um, and yeah. so that was definitely a part of the process as well. And, and it was important, but super traumatic and, um, distressing and, and, well, the lawsuit. but like I said, they had really the last, the lawsuit part, you know, and, and the fact, like I said, that the provider had, had shut us out, you know, yep. like that we never saw her again, or that there was never like a disclosure. That is so I'm sure that risk common. management scooped yeah. them up and, you know. It's so common. And yet, I, I mean, I, I, I created some courses on risk management, healthcare risk management. And one of the things that I mm -hmm. have a lot of data on is um, the power of apology and how when providers make a mistake, if they come back and explain um, what happened and they apologize, um, it's not going to make it go away. But at the very least, you don't feel like they're shunning me and... So, and a lot of people file malpractice cases to get answers. I mean, that's it. Records. That's like, it. Yeah, I want answers. And, and in, and in some cases I'll speak for myself, I want an apology. Of course, I know I'll never get yeah. one, but I wanted an no. apology. I wanted something that, you know, I'm, I'm at the very least, you know, I, I, someone to say, I screwed up. I shouldn't have, or I should have, and I'm sorry, or be better yet. I really learned from this and it'll never happen again because of X. I, I I'll never get that. And that, that bothers me. I've tried to get through yeah. that, but it bothers me. So um, yeah. I, I know the answer to as much of this, but tell me about like a day-to-day -day in the life of taking care of Alex during his life. Yeah, so uh, he came home at three months. Um, we were, our insurance approved initially eight hours of nursing at night mm -hmm. so we could sleep. 
Um, and so we had set up like a pack and play in our living room and we had an IV pole with his feeding tube pump on it. And we had, you know, an O2 set, you know, machine and we had the suction machine cause he couldn't, you know, clear his secretions. And we had, you know, the wedge because he had to be elevated because he had reflux and he had surgery for that. And uh, he would have seizures. Um, so, you know, someone had to watch him pretty much all the time. Um, and so, you know, it felt really, um, it was really isolating for sure. There were two couples that, I don't know, you know, I was, I was so blessed to have them in my life that weren't afraid to come mm, and yeah. be with us. Um, you know, our best friends for life, you know, we were two young couples. They were pregnant at the same time I was pregnant. They were a little, uh, she was due maybe three or four months after me with Alex. And she came pregnant to the NICU. Like, I just, like, she's a superhero. You know what I mean? That she was able to... Um, manage her own fears and whatever and walk in there and stand next to me and hold him yeah you know just meant so much to me you are getting and, you're getting to a question that i i really mm -hmm. want to talk about and that is if if a listener uh mm -hmm. has someone in their life who's you know had something like this happen their baby is born and you know whatever this issue is you know what what is helpful so i mean having mm -hmm. someone just you know, hold your baby, not be afraid, um, talk yeah. to you, you know, all those different things, um, I think are really very helpful, right? So it's like, and you remember it, it's been how many years now, 23 years, so you remember. Yeah, so yeah. and you know, you know, when they had their baby, they brought their baby over and they would lay her in the pack and play next oh, yeah. to Alex, you know, like I have pictures of them together. That's the only picture I have of him with another child. He was never with anyone else, you know? Um, and so, yeah, people who, you know, you know, like our pediatrician, you know, and, and his wife at the time, you know, um, would come over or have us over or, um, you know, it was strange at first because, you know, um, I could put a little hat on him and I could wrap him up and I could put him in a, a stroller for a while and people would be like, oh, he's so beautiful and he's just sleeping you know, because he often did look like he was asleep. Um, but when you're, you know, your baby's a year old and his head is very small and his arms and legs, you know, have tone and uh, you've got medical equipment and now you're in like a pediatric wheelchair type stroller, um, you know, it's very different. Yeah, yeah. You're no longer, I used to call that passing. I couldn't pass it. Yes. You know, I could pass for like six I, months to I, almost a year. I could pass. For people, yeah, I, I remember vividly the day when yeah. it was like, oh my gosh. And of course we needed to do it because he was getting bigger and we had to have bigger stuff, but yeah. I'm not going to be able to pass anymore. And and it wasn't my fear. It was being singled out and having people yeah. be afraid of me because my child's in a wheelchair or whatever. Yeah. Well, in reality, you know, I would love to have, you know, have had let's talk about him I'd be happy to tell you you know who he is and yeah. what's going on and so on what's but... going on and stuff so yeah um you know crazy thing so my husband and I you know 
we've been together for almost 30 years and we went through this when we were 26 and we're 50 ish now. And, um, when he first came home, you know, yes, we had, we were supposed to have nurses in the house at night, but you know, quite often they wouldn't show up for their shift or they were short staffed. They didn't have anyone to staff uh, the shift. And so we would have to sleep, you know, in shifts, you know, one of us would stay up and the other would, um, be with him and to this day you know like we'll lay down in bed together and the first one to go to sleep has a good night's sleep and the other one is restless wow yeah like I just feel like that trauma is just so ingrained in us that someone always has to be yeah. on lookout I know for you know? me um the sound of alarms anything yeah. alarm. I have I have a medical condition where I go get an IV infusion every six months and when the when the IV runs out, the beeper starts on that machine and it immediately sets me off. And I know, I know it's coming. I know what it is, but those alarms, I have to know, what is it? What can we do? How do we turn it off? Who needs help? What's happening when in reality, it's, it's most of the time, nothing at all. No one's running. Mm -hmm. No one's, you know, it's like, okay, maybe just calm it down. It's okay. But for me, those alarms are not, um, yeah, for me, that's a, that's yeah. a, a tough one the alarms mm -hmm. won't so. so I mean you mentioned you and your husband have been together a long time mm -hmm. and I, I congratulate you for that I, I know it's extremely hard work to have a long term especially when you go through um trauma like that so yeah. statistics you know, are against us for sure oh no doubt whatsoever and, and mm -hmm. of course anybody who knows me knows that my my marriage ended um partly because mm -hmm. um yeah so tell me about like kind of what you and I know you have two other mm -hmm. kids, but kind of what you and your family you know, what do you think you've, you've, I don't want to say, but what have you learned or what have you uh, got Alex that you think has changed how, who you are and how you are a parent and a wife and a worker and all those yeah. things? I mean, I think in one extent, you know, we are definitely, you know, my husband and I were definitely trauma bonded because, you know, there were so few people that knew the truth of what it was like to be in those rooms, to be in that NICU, to be in that house alone with the baby, to have nurses coming in. We were the only two in the room when he died. Um, and so, you know, that connection is really strong and sort of like war buddies and to a certain extent, you know, we have mutual PTSD about it. Um, but at the same time, you know, we were sort of like pod people. After when he died, I was three months pregnant with my next child when when Alex died, um, and you know, I think you know it sounds insane. We were told very clearly when he was three months old that he was not likely to make it to a second birthday, um, but you you established like an human beings have an amazing capacity to adapt and to normalize the very abnormal. And we had done that, you know, with our life with him, we had normalized the medical equipment and the persist, you know, the, the lack of developmental stages and the medical complications and, and um, so when he did become, it happened very fast at the end. It wasn't like there were weeks leading up to when he died. His nurse, we were back to work and his nurse called us and said uh, he had a fever and um, that there was some discharge from his G-tube site. And what did we want to do? Do we want 
you know, to come, you know, to take him to the doctor? Do we want to pursue antibiotics? What did we want to do? And, um, and so my husband left work and I, he told me I could stay and he, um, took him to the children's hospital. And then a few hours later, I was still at work. He called me and he said, I think you need to come. And, um, so it just, you know, and, and we, he, he never came out of the hospital. He died the next morning. Um, and when we left the hospital without him, it was so shocking. It was so shocking. Yeah. You know? I can imagine the first, I'm, I'm, again, I'll speak for myself, the first few mm -hmm. nights after he's gone and there's not that constant need, like my husband and I, we we, we had nursing care until 11 at night. And so mm -hmm. from seven in the morning, we, we took shifts. So um, that that sense of, I'm not listening for anything. I'm not, the eerie silence of it, if you will, and just kind of, um, yeah. And, um, so, I mean, I came home and I dismantled his setup in the living room immediately. I couldn't look at the empty, yeah. um, crib. I couldn't look at the, the IV poles and the suction machine and all that stuff. And, um, it wasn't that I was trying to erase him. It was just too painful to, to sit there with it. Um, and, you know, I think for really probably the first year, Steve and I were, were zombie people, you know, <laughs> um, going through the motions, but not really processing. And then we had six months later, a new baby was born and um, that's hard enough, <laughs> yeah. um, but to be kind of still in acute grief and, and not processing and so then there's you know I felt like the first year was really in shock the second year was really depressing it was exhausting it was the realization that the grief was going to be relentless that it was going to be permanent yeah you know um not that I believed it would feel the same but that it was just that it was real that it was not um yeah, that it was just, you know, part of you, reality, part of me. Yeah. Who you are. Um, and so I think the second year I was, I was really depressed. And then the third year I was probably angry, <laughs> I think a lot. Um, and Steve and I both developed pretty maladaptive coping strategies, whether it was, you know, drinking or gambling or shopping or whatever you know like I think we um and you know I think it's hard when both partners in a relationship are grieving because it's not like there's some there's someone who can you know I felt like we we took turns falling apart and we didn't fall apart together yeah. And I, I, do you think that's mm -hmm. because, I mean, I know people don't grieve the same way. Yeah. So I know yeah. what, what wouldn't work, what, what, what made me feel less horrible mm -hmm. <laughs> didn't, wasn't what my, my husband did. I mean, he, he did, right. he, he got very active in, in politics and, and, and mm -hmm. so on. Whereas I, I, I'm an introvert. So for me, yeah. I just wanted to curl up in a ball um, 
and yeah, and and that was it was a, I call it a very dark time. It was a very very dark time. Um, those yeah, times. yeah. I feel like we just took turns functioning. Like you pull it together for a few months and you function, and I'll be really messy, and then I'll fall apart and you pull it together and function for the two other kids and the jobs and whatever, and I'll be really <laughs> you can be really messy, like you know. And so I do feel like we developed sort of co-workers at this factory kind of relationship you know you clock in I'll clock out kind of thing for a long time um and you know other things happen my 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 uh, second child was diagnosed with autism which was really difficult and challenging um and you know we moved multiple times and all this stuff happened and it did eventually the bill came due on our marriage and our mental states, both of us. Um, fortunately, we got help and we, you know, therapy and, and, you know, just processing and um, finding healthier ways to deal with stuff. And we managed to cobble, you know, a functioning marriage and and family life in a satisfying couple relationship again but you know it was a good 15 years which sounds like an eternity of really struggling with this yeah. um, so tell me about kind of how you uh, spend um alex's birthday um mm -hmm. And definitely, what do you have something you do on those days, or how is it, do you remember him, or how does that work for you? You know, it's it's interesting. So um, we uh, had Alex cremated, and again, being like twenty something year olds when he he died, and not really knowing where we were going to land in the world, um, we didn't want to bury him someplace that we weren't going to live or visit or or whatever um and so we decided to scatter his ashes um at the ocean um in new jersey that way you know in in our thinking you know the water cycle or whatever wherever we were going to land we could access water and nature and connect to him and so that's what we did um and I've learned, you know, at this point, I, I take time off around his birthday and the anniversary of his death, not necessarily with a plan all the time. Sometimes we go to New Jersey, um, most often in October. I'm way more connected to the day he died um, than his birthday. Um, his birthday was such a traumatic day and both mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually traumatic. Nothing good happened that day. Only, you know, that was, that was the loss. The loss was on the day that he was really born. And then we were sort of caretaking this shell of our baby for a while. And then he died. Um, and so I find his birthday much more difficult than the day of his death. But I, at this point, I, like I said, I take time off around both and I don't necessarily have a plan, but I just let myself do whatever feels right. If I feel like just going about my 
a normal everyday life and doing everyday things, then I do that. If I feel like laying in bed and crying or watching TV or reading, or if I feel like going to the beach and spending time with him in nature, I do that. Um, I really write myself a blank check. Oh, I love that phrase. Um, yeah. I, you and I have so much in common, um, mm -hmm. including the, I think of my, my son um, was born on um, September 4th, which almost always lands Labor Day weekend and it does again this this year. And so I typically for his birthday will spend, um, we have a, a local fair that happens out here in the county fair. Um, and I'll go to that on Ian's birthday. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that, I mean, he, he, he actually did come mm -hmm. with us to the fair one year when he was mm -hmm. two. Um, but for some reason, I did see in the families and my my daughter and her family and whatever that I, I it makes me feel I don't know somehow connected. But um, mm -hmm. the death anniversary is is um, it's tough for me because mm -hmm. there's this sort of a double edged sword, right? I, mm -hmm. I I'm I'm sorry that he was gone, but I'm happy that he's no longer suffering. Yeah. And that is, um, it's just it's I know you understand me, but it's really difficult. <laughs> it is I think it is really hard for people to understand how um you know like I said you know I I think societally it makes people super uncomfortable to talk about um the death of a child particularly uh death in general but particularly a, a baby um you know but you know there's a lot, there's so much logic to the fact that, you know, his quality of life was so poor. Um, and, you know, was his experience on the planet going to be any different for five years, for 10 years, or the 15 months that he had, you know, um, I, I don't feel in our case that that was going to be true. So, um, yeah, yeah, it was, it's very strange to caretake for someone who's um, so impaired that can't communicate, you know, Alex can communicate with us in any meaningful way. Um, you know, his injury was so severe that he never, you know, was really able to connect. Um, you know, we did physical touch, we did all sorts of sensory sort of therapies or whatever, but really all we could do was hold him. Um, and so um, it was, you know, I remember the dreams right after he died for for um, weeks. I would have these dreams where I would go to the hospital and try to steal his body back because um, I just felt like I had to take care of that body. Like that had been the only thing I could do for him as a mother. Like, like I couldn't do anything else but take care of that body. And so um, I would have these dreams where I would get him and bring him home and like put him under my bed or in the closet so that I could keep him. Um, you know, it's just so complicated and messy. Yeah, actually, I, I think that makes total sense. I mean, you mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, not wanting to bury Alex because you didn't want to have to have there be this one space. Um, yeah. I don't know that that occurred to my husband and I when Ian died, mm -hmm. we had him buried. Um, but I do know um, over the years, I've often thought to myself, I, I can't leave this area because if I leave this mm -hmm. area, you know, who's going to make sure there's flowers and a stuffed animal? Um, yeah. Um, Great. And I, I, my son died at home. So for the longest time, I thought I can't leave his house because his house is just, it's where he's rooted. I can't leave it. And then I finally realized I could. Um, and yeah. I could give it to another family who could, who could love it as much as, as my family did. And that was, that was helpful, but um, I totally get the whole. Yeah. I mean, when, after Alex died, I think we left Philadelphia about a year later. I really, at that time in my grief, couldn't tolerate driving by 
the house that we had lived in, um, expecting him, the hospital where he had been born. I would see advertisements on TV for the obstetric group that delivered him. Um, and like I, I, I could see in my head the whole life that I thought we were going to have. And it was so painful um, that we actually moved away. We left um, and started over somewhere else. You know, we took all the grief with us, but at the time it seemed like I just needed to um, to not feel that for a little while. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Totally. In, in my case with, with my son, I, I was afraid that if I did that, I would regret it. So I stayed there yeah. for 17 years after he died. Mm -hmm. and, um, I don't, I don't, I don't regret that. I don't. There's no right answer. There's no right answer. There really isn't. Zero right answer. It's like whatever works works. But um, yeah. yeah. So, mm -hmm. uh, anything else you'd like to share for our listeners, or anything you'd like for anybody to hear before we before we end? I guess um, you know. I think the message that I just want to share um, for people who have experienced a loss like ours, um, you know, is to, um, I don't know that I would have been able to get through it without the connection I had to you and some of the other parents uh, in the group. You know, we went through supporting each other through the lives of our children. And we also had the, the gift of being able to support each other through the loss of all of our children. Um, and there are such painful and difficult details and to have a place and people that you can tell those truths to without having to caretake for their feelings around it or how they'll respond. You know, I think that's the hardest thing is like you, you have some, somebody in your life who doesn't know what it was like and you, you try to share it with them and they get so upset that you end up caretaking yes. their feelings. So I, I just think it's so important to find people that you don't have to do that with. Yeah. Where you can just be open and honest and truthful without trying to clean it up or put a bow around it or package it in some way to make it digestible for other people um, yeah. is really, really important. It's that like when I talk about that, you know, the word passing when you could pass before they get, yeah. they get a signal. It's like, I don't want to pass anymore. I want to be able to talk to people who know what it's like. What is it like to yeah. get up and have to, you know, shake your child so you start breathing again? What is that? What's that look like? Right. So, um, yeah. yeah, that is, uh, I don't want to talk about that. Well, yeah, a lot, most people don't, and that's the problem. So, um, I know yeah. for me, especially when I, when I talk about my son, um, around his birthday or whatever, I'll, I'll post something mm -hmm. on, on social media, but, um, I'm always happy to talk about him. I mean, I, I, I use the phrase, sometimes you'll see one of my, um, my memories slide by on my cheek and tear for him. Always happy. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's, he's part of me. He's part of who I am and who I'll always be. So there's that, yeah. but anyway. Yeah, you know, and I do feel plugged in. Um, I think all humans get there eventually. You experience enough pain or suffering or loss or grief that you get plugged into the side of suffering that connects us all. You know, instead of feeling isolated now about it, I feel like it's my source of connection to yeah. other people because no matter the details of their loss or their grief or their experience or what they're going through I know pain and yeah. I know what that feels like and I'm grateful that I can take that experience and use it to extend compassion with people and um 
be connected and not be alone anymore. And it took a long time. It's it's still a work in progress. Uh, grief is a lifetime experience for me. Yeah. Um, it changes all the time. It evolves. It, it morphs. It it does crazy things, and it catches you off guard at the craziest times, and it lifts you up in weird ways. Um, but it's, you know, for me now, I do really feel that it is important um, to my experience as a human on the planet and it that it allows me to connect to people and care for people in my life and in my world in a really important way. Yeah, uh, I see that in you and I know working in healthcare, mm-hmm. so you get to interact with people in a clinical yeah. way too, so that's that's important. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing Absolutely. your story. Um, um, I, I, I'll throw out there for listeners. It's the first time Amy and I've actually spoken, even though we've known each other for 20 plus years. So it's been online up until this point in time. So yay, technology. <laughs> but yeah. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Good Grief. To hear more about my personal story, please pick up a copy of my book, The Day I Became the Spider Killer, a memoir of trauma, tragedy, and survival available in paperback, Kindle, and Audible via Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online book retailers.